You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. Once again, this is Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 81 of season 3, episode... 146 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. It is June 19th, 2021. Saturday morning. It's a nice, cool morning here where I am at. The weather is fair. And we're going to talk about 11 books to improve communication. I got a message yesterday from J.P. Chavez, my neighbor two houses down. He writes, how does one get better at communication? Specifically, in regards to what you are having Josiah do this summer, how do you train yourself to organize your thoughts and distill information? Then train yourself to express them in a coherent way. That's a great question, J.P. That is a very fine question. And this reading list To be clear, is not all there is to it. I have also had the very great privilege of working with my cousin Micah, my wife, my kids, others, countless others over the years. Through trial and error, I have learned how I was not a good communicator. I have learned ways that I was sabotaging and undermining what it was that I was trying to say because I didn't realize how I was coming across to people. And the only way I was able to identify the shortcomings in the way I had been communicating and the way I still do, to be honest with you, better doesn't mean perfect. It just means improved. It means better. Not best necessarily, not perfect, but better. The way I was able to get that critical feedback is I looked for it. I asked for it. Not everyone you might ask for critical feedback on your communication is going to give you actual critical feedback. Some people will, and you have to just take what you can get. Some people will give you critical feedback even if you don't want it. And not all critical feedback from all people is in good faith. Sometimes people will criticize because they don't like what you're saying. You said what you were trying to say effectively, and that's just it. They didn't want to hear what you were trying to say. But even there, if you can peel back the layers of the onion a little bit on the kind of feedback they give you and the tone in which they deliver it and the context of their feedback. If you can really pay attention to what they said and what they didn't say, you can still learn some important things about how you're communicating from people who are giving critical feedback in bad faith. So for instance, I propose some big challenge to a preconception that a lot of people have, whether it's a cultural bias, whether it's a tradition that we just don't ever question, whatever it is, I propose some challenge and an alternate 
explanation, theory, proposal. Here's how I think we could understand this better or relate to it better or be more godly or be wiser or be more effective or whatever. And someone has their pride stepped on a little bit and they let me know it. And they challenge me. They say, you know what? I think your tone was just really not very helpful in that thing that you just said, that you just wrote, that you just told that person over there. I really don't appreciate your tone. Okay, now I'm at a decision point. What do I do? Do I just dismiss that out of hand? Do I assume bad motives right off the bat? I might suspect, but ask follow-up questions and listen. Listen carefully. Give them opportunity to unpack what it is that they did not like about what you said or how you said it. And listen carefully what their stated reasons are. If their stated reasons have everything to do with what you said and it's an inherently offensive idea, there might not be any better way you could have said it and still been clear. They just didn't like that you said it. In that case, they might not be helping you to become a better communicator. But then again, they might be. Because a lot of times we can lose the effectiveness of our communication by qualifying things to death. Sometimes people want us to explain more clearly what it is that we mean. Sometimes they want us to communicate less clearly and they want us to qualify things to the point of impotence. And so you have all these judgment calls you've got to make. Sometimes the feedback you get helps you to understand your audience in a way that is surprising. And that's part of communication. My dad gave me really good advice a number of years ago, and he's repeated that advice to me helpfully, not in a way that I don't appreciate, in a way that I do appreciate because it's helpful to remember it. He said to me years ago that he took a class on speech in college, and it always stuck with him that a good speech involves telling your listener what it is that you're going to tell them and then telling them that thing. And then your conclusion is you telling them what you just told them. You have to be able to introduce what it is that you're going to say. And if you're shy about that, if you're embarrassed about what it is that you're going to tell somebody, you might shoot yourself in the foot from the get-go. You might precondition your listener or your reader to dismiss what it is that you're about to tell them. And you can undermine your message very easily. So what you have to do is you have to figure out, okay, why? If I am embarrassed about what it is that I'm about to say, why am I embarrassed about that? Am I embarrassed because I don't fully grasp this idea? Am I embarrassed because I am going to get flack for this? I'm going to take flack whether I should or shouldn't. Am I embarrassed because I haven't practiced yet explaining this? All of those things might have a different course correction required in order to avoid embarrassment. It is good to practice saying something before you have to say it. Just like target practice. Just like going out with a gun you've just bought to the range. And the first shot you fire at the paper is probably not going to hit the bullseye. 
with a brand new gun, you've never shot it before, you're probably not going to hit the bullseye on the first try. And that's why you practice. And practice involves not just shooting at the paper and then walking away. You shoot at the paper. And then when the range is clear, you go up and you check the paper. Did I hit the mark? Did I not? Okay, well, let's correct. Let's try again. Let's change my approach. Let's adjust. Let's adapt. Re-engage. Check again. Re-engage. Check again. Re-engage. Check again. And that's the improvement process for anything, communication being no exception. So writing, I think, is very helpful because sometimes we don't understand what it is that we are saying. We know what we want to say, but we don't understand what it is that we're actually saying. Just like I want to hit the bullseye every time when I'm shooting at a target at the range, that doesn't mean that I always hit the target, but I won't know that I hit the target or I didn't unless I'm willing to double check that paper when the range is clear. So writing and looking at your own writing, writing something out and then reading it back to yourself and then going back through and doing the quality control. This sentence is a bit clunky. I've got some unnecessary words that are just cluttering up the statement that I'm trying to make. I have too many questions here. Some of these questions don't need to be questions. Some of these questions need to be statements because I don't mean it as a question. And I've reached critical mass, maximum saturation. No more questions. I've got to pick a few and then change the rest to statements and do some research. Maybe it's good to write out the questions on the first draft, but then I need to pick some of those questions and go do some further reading, contemplation, fact-finding. Now I've got to get to work to change those questions into statements. Write it out, edit it. Write it out again, edit it again. Keep doing that. Lather, rinse, repeat until you can't make it any better than it already is. And then move on to the next thing and write about that and edit, and rewrite it, and re-edit it, and so on and so forth. But on to the books that I want to recommend. I told JP that part of the way that I've trained myself has been this process improvement. Honestly, part of this uh, getting better at communication pursuit is podcasting, believe it or not. I, I think some people listen to this podcast and they think, what is this, right? What are you, what are you, why are you talking about everything? Well, part of the reason why I'm talking about everything on this podcast is because I want to get better at communicating about anything and everything. Whatever's going to come up, whatever I need to be able to talk about with other people, I want to be able to talk about competently, clearly, effectively. I want to know how to ask questions well and get the information I need from others. I want to know how to transmit information that others need to have so that they're able to make informed decisions. If there are attitudes that need to change, behaviors, habits, actions, I want my communication to be effective at whatever it is that I'm trying to accomplish with it. Listening and speaking. So on the writing front, I can take that whole process improvement piece and adapt it for podcasting. So what I do is I record a podcast. I come up with a topic, right? 11 books to improve communication, for instance. I want to talk about 
these books that I have intentionally picked and read over the years to try and improve my own communication. That's what I want to talk about. And I told you on the front end, that's what we're going to talk about, right? So I'm following my father's advice. I told you what I was going to tell you. And now I'm telling you what I'm going to tell you. And at the very tail end, I'll tell you what I told you, hopefully. So this list of books, why did I pick them? I'll tell you, and I'll tell you what books they are. That's part of how I have tried to train myself to become a better communicator. And so now I'm going to record this podcast, and I'm going to listen back to it after I'm done. After I finish recording, I'm going to listen back through it, and I'm going to try to critique myself. Not necessarily harshly, because harsh isn't always better when it comes to criticism, but accurately. I want to critique myself accurately. When I said X, Y, and Z, I stumbled over my words a little bit. Why was that? What was I thinking in that moment? Why did I get distracted? Why did I go off on a tangent there? How could I be more focused next time? Did I say that thing that I said in an overly complicated way? If so, I want to get better at being more concise. I want to get better at being more succinct. I want to get better at being clear. Am I using overly complicated language? Am I using unfamiliar words that I know the meaning of, but my audience might not? If I am, am I defining my terms when I have to use that unfamiliar term? Or could I get better at using simple, easily commonly understood words because I want as many people as possible to understand my meaning quickly, readily? If you've got to pause this podcast every five seconds, to go off to Webster's Dictionary online and look up a word I used, that really breaks up the flow of what I'm trying to say. So also if I'm talking with my kids, sometimes that's good, but I have to be strategic about it and I have to be intentional about it. Otherwise, I risk losing my audience. So I do that process improvement thing with this podcast. And if I never have a million listeners and quit my day job to do this full time, at a minimum, I'm investing in improving my communication, being more intentional about it, being more aware of how I'm coming across. It was well and good to become a a good writer or a decent writer at least through years and years of writing, editing, rewriting, re-editing. But how much benefit was that bringing to my spoken word, and my casual conversations with people. I didn't want to leave that question to chance, and I didn't want to just shrug and say, who needs to speak out loud to people? I'll just be like Zechariah in the Gospels after he has that encounter with the angel who tells him that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a child, a son in their old age, Zechariah comes out of that meeting being unable to speak. He is struck dumb. Not able to speak, he has to write everything out on a tablet and show it to people until God gives him his voice back. I didn't want to be that guy who can only communicate when I have a chance to write, edit, rewrite, re-edit, 
because I need to be able to communicate with my wife and my kids a little quicker than that. I need to be able to communicate with people I work with a little quicker than that. I need to be able to communicate with the people around me day in and day out confidently, effectively, intentionally, thus the podcast. Really, truly, that was the main impetus for doing the podcast thing was to use this like a mirror and to use it as a measuring stick. Am I able to communicate about these things well? Even if I didn't have a podcast or had never written anything for public consumption, I would still love reading books. I loved reading books well before I got into writing and podcasting. But that was the next challenge for me. Okay, I'm reading these books. I'm reading National Geographic and Discover Magazine and all of these things. I'm reading all the science fiction and fantasy and history and self-improvement and all that. But do I understand it? Do I really get it? There's only one way to find out. I need to write things that I can then read to see if I grasped the content. That's the only way I'm going to be confident that I actually did get something out of this book and wasn't just looking at ink on a page lamely. It was in one ear and out the other, or I don't know. How do you say that when it's something you're reading visually in one eye and out the other? I don't know. You get my meaning. Let's move on to the reading list before I run out of time telling you about communication more broadly. And I hope as I put these books and links to them in the description for this podcast, I hope that any one of them or all of them can be helpful to you, JP, and then also to anyone else listening. These are some good books by respected authors and you can get something out of any one of these. If you want to be a better communicator, I recommend all of these. But let's get into the list. First off is Humilitas, A Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership by John Dixon. I borrowed this book about a decade ago from Jeff Lyle, a pastor in Hillsboro, Ohio, after he recommended it to his congregation. The major takeaway for me was that successful leaders in every sphere of accomplishment and human achievement consistently embody a high concentration of both confidence and humility. Without confidence, a leader will not put forward a bold idea or proposal for others to see and appreciate, whether by word or deed. But without humility, a leader will quickly lose the trust of those whose attention he has caught, and conceit will cause him to be rejected and opposed for being harsh, inflexible, unapproachable, and a perceived threat. But when confidence is combined with humility, bold ideas can be both put forward and also tried, tested, refined, and adopted more readily by individuals and groups around us. Next up on the list is Good Leaders Ask Great Questions by John C. Maxwell. I picked this book because an aunt and uncle of mine who were successful in business thought highly of Maxwell, and he seemed to me to be well-respected in both the secular and Christian business community as someone who gives good advice grounded in biblical truth. 
the long and short of it, from what I recall, having read the book several years ago, is that biblical leadership requires humility, a sincere desire to serve God and others, and consistent integrity in our words and deeds. And, of course, being a good leader requires having the courage and humility to ask great questions of those around us so as to demonstrate good faith in wanting to make informed decisions and consider the needs and ideas of those around us. Moving on, Crucial Conversations, Tools for Talking When Stakes Are High by Patterson, Grenny, McMillan, and Switzler. This book is actually written by several authors who each contributed certain chapters on given aspects of Crucial Conversations. I picked this book to study how to communicate more intentionally when there is conflict or the potential for conflict so as to navigate difficult topics with others in a way that was more likely to bring about a positive outcome while mitigating unnecessary offense. I ended up reading through the book with Lauren to improve how we navigate disagreement and situations where one of us feels offended or could Communicating a disagreement about how a situation has been handled, is being handled, and will be handled in the future requires avoiding unnecessary accusatory language. And couching perceived defenses more carefully can make all the difference in the world in avoiding defensiveness in the person you are confronting or challenging. For example, hyperbole erodes our credibility. We don't have to say, you always do this, or... You never do that. Instead, we could say, here's what I have observed, and it seems to be a pattern of behavior. And then if that perceived pattern of behavior implies a bad attitude or faulty assumptions, we can more successfully get information from the other person as to what is driving that pattern of behavior. And once we have that information and the person we are challenging feels like they have truly been heard, they will be more open to hearing a counterproposal that is more agreeable to all parties concerned. Next, by the same authors, the same team, is a book called Influencer, The New Science of Leading Change. So this book was actually recommended to me by Paul Turek, a pastor in Sydney, Montana, who told me he reads this once a year and has done so for several years and that he found it helpful in understanding how to shape culture, church culture, especially in his case. Sometimes the impediment to interpersonal communication is a misunderstanding of the role culture plays in shaping the receptiveness of individuals who belong to a culture to new ideas, which challenge the status quo. But if we can understand how individuals relate to the cultures they belong to, we can better avoid unnecessary tripwires and we can more easily perceive opportunities to posit necessary change in a way that is both non-threatening and attractive. Moving on, The Culture Code, The Secrets of Highly Successful Groups by Daniel Coyle. I actually picked this book up as a follow-up to Influencer. And I ended up liking it much better as a way of understanding what differentiates successful group culture from unsuccessful group culture so as to communicate better in relation to the cultures at work, church, 
family, broader society. What I learned in reading COIL is that highly successful groups place a high value on trust, relationship building, teamwork, continuous improvement, being committed to the success of each member of the group as well as each member of the group being committed to the success and vision of the whole group. Very often, this is accomplished through symbolic acts, rituals, regularly eating meals together, for instance, and a combination of critical feedback toward process improvement and supportive affirmative feedback to encourage the continuance of helpful habits, attitudes, and behaviors. Also by Daniel Coyle, I picked up the talent code because I had read Coyle's book about what makes groups successful, and I wanted to better understand how to work with skilled and talented individuals. How do those people see the world and themselves and those around them? The perspectives of talented and highly skilled individuals will go a long way to deciding how they perceive me, particularly if they think I am challenging them in some way they feel very confident and strong in. But if I can affirm their strengths genuinely and sincerely, and if I can couch my advice and suggestions for how they may need to amend their way of relating or communicating with those around them, I will have a better success rate at talking with them about opportunities for improvement. And if I understand what drove and still drives talented individuals to become good at what they are good at, I can perceive better the threats and opportunities inherent to communicating with and coordinating with them. Unpacking this just a little bit more, because the next book on this list is about talented, successful people. People who are religious about a certain thing that they do, they've done it a lot, they do it really well, they don't do that thing for so long and so much and so well for no reason. They do that thing because they feel that there is a value in it. And at a certain point, if they're highly regarded for being good at that thing, if they are standout in their field, if they are celebrated and affirmed and recognized by their peers, by those around them, they will put a lot of their identity into being good at that thing. And being good at that thing, they might sometimes hide behind the fact that they are good at that thing. And they are good at that thing. And if you challenge them and you say, well, wait a second, hold on, what about this? You might be right. right? You might be right that they overlooked something. If it's in their strength, in their field of expertise, you might be right. And it might be very threatening and difficult for them unless they've gotten good at taking a deep breath and listening. They might, depending on how you approach them about something, hide behind their accomplishments and rest on their laurels and throw things that you tell them back in your face dismissively with hostility. But if you can find a way to affirm them being good at what they're good at, and even find a way of couching your advice, your feedback, your observation in terms of 
them already being good at this thing and you trying to get their perspective as somebody who is good at this thing that they do, that they're good at, you might just avoid setting them off. But the next book on the list, similar to the last, as I said, is Outliers, The Story of Success by Malcolm Gladwell. Similar to my reasons for reading The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, I picked this book up because I had read Gladwell's book about thinking and wanted to get his perspective on what makes individuals successful or talented so as to communicate better with people who are successful. You'll find, too, when I talk about work, this features largely in a big way. Bigly. I work with some people who have been doing the oil and gas thing for 20 or 30 years. I work with some people who have accomplished at previous employment opportunities, promotions, recognition, awards, prestige, affirmation, and they will tell you about it often and early. And so you know that their identity here is very much tied up with previous accomplishments that you have to take their word for it. They accomplished those things. Maybe they did. And if you disagree with them, if you challenge them, if you push back, if you're trying to brainstorm an idea on how to do things moving forward, watch out. They will remind you they have been very successful in the past. And maybe let's just do it the way they want to do it. And maybe they're closed off to hearing a fresh idea because this is a different situation than what they used to do. This is not that. And if they approach this like it is that, like it's a one-to-one, we're all going to be in a little bit of trouble. And if they're able to bully and intimidate because they can draw on that previous experience, you might just have an organization held captive by one person's ego or a couple people's ego You might get into some arm wrestling contests as far as whose resume is the longer and whose experience is the most relevant and whose previous accomplishments are the most impressive. And all the while, people on the margins like me are thinking, what in God's name does this have to do with the problem at hand? But of course, you can't ask that. You can't say that. You can't go there out loud. You have to say Instead, something that will bring the attention back to the matter at hand. So, you might have to redirect. But, in short, Gladwell says that a lot of what makes people who are world-class masters at what they do successful or talented is a combination of chance and happenstance and, yes, hard work over an extended period of time. The 10,000-hour rule of proficiency states that a person will become a master at some task or pursuit when they put in that amount of time. World-class athletes, musicians, entrepreneurs, computer programmers, whatever, typically got an early start on pursuing that benchmark early in their childhood. So that leads me to an interest in finding out what the people around me have been doing for a long time so as to better understand what they are good at. And sometimes what you'll find is what people say they have been doing for a long, long time is not exactly what they have actually been doing for a long, long time. Some people I know have been bragging about their past accomplishments for 10,000 hours, and they are masters at telling you 
how good they are. They are absolutely proficient. <laughs> but if you listen carefully, and if you watch carefully, you can tell what people have actually been doing for 10,000 hours and what they haven't. Usually, the most proficient people don't have to tell you. They don't even necessarily know what they've been doing for 10,000 hours. It just becomes second nature. It's like breathing to them. It's obvious. The people who have to tell you, I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes here, but the people who have to tell you how long they've been doing something in order to win you over to their way of thinking need to go back to the drawing board. That might not be what they want to hear, but if that's the best argument you can come up with is that you've been doing this for 30 years, 30 years might not be long enough because you're closed off to new ideas. For 30 years, you maybe have just tooted your own horn and it's time to come back down to earth. This is a team. We need to be a team. We need to have a successful group culture. If you're a talented individual at that specific task, okay, well, let's listen to what everybody has to say here and let's all get more talented at working together and getting buy-in because we're stronger together if we work as a team than some Kobe Bryant or LeBron James type superstar prima donna wanting to be a ball hog all the time and make all the decisions by themselves. Right? Of course, right. I think this also helps me in understanding negative habits and attitudes, how they become so deeply ingrained. The biblical admonition to train up a child in the way he should go and when he is older, he will not depart from it, comes to mind here. If people have had a bad habit for 10,000 hours, it is really, really hard for them to break that habit. Really difficult. Good luck. The deeper and further back a habit was established, the harder it is to retrain. So sometimes, actually, truth be told, somebody who's fresh, when you need things to be done in a new way might be a better fit than somebody who has all the experience in the world because lots of experience is not an asset when it's bad experience or when it's irrelevant experience. So we have to be careful there. I have to be careful there. Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking by Malcolm Gladwell. Also, another Malcolm Gladwell book. I picked this book because how we think, whether intuitively or systematically, is central to how communication happens, whether you're on the transmitting or receiving end of it. Is making a snap decision based on gut instinct inherently less reliable than being really organized, intentional, and rational? Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. It really depends. Both kinds of thinking are common, and if we can appreciate the different kinds of thinking in ourselves and others, we can better engage our entire mind and heart when communicating. And we can also better engage other people's entire minds and hearts. You don't want to have something seem good at first blush, but it has no depth for the person who's going to need to just take a day or two, pray about it, think about it, talk with the wife. You want there to be a depth to what is being proposed, suggested, communicated, transmitted, which has staying power. That isn't a sugar rush. But you also don't want something to be so lofty, so deep, 
that a person can't readily see the value in it and they just dismiss it out of hand. They don't even put in the additional thought because it's just that. Well, you know, that's not going to work, right? I work with some people that are like that. If they would take the time to think about something that's been proposed for longer than five seconds, they would see the benefits to it, but something turned them off on a gut instinct level right away from the word go. And now they're closed to that idea. They don't want to hear any more about it. And good luck, good luck leading that horse to water and convincing them to drink. But that's part of communication. So it's a good book to read. Next on the list is The Marshmallow Test by Walter Mischel. I picked this book up because self-control and restraint are so central to being a better listener and also because communication and influence are so related to our capacity for redirecting ourselves. We cannot hope to influence the attitudes and behaviors of others without understanding self-control and how to get better at exercising it. If we want our communication to be effective, we have to be able to restrain ourselves from wanting to jump on every statement we disagree with. And we also have to understand the limitations of others' ability to restrain themselves if we hope to be successful in helping them to make the most of the ideas we want them to consider and possibly embrace. So, like I said, you work with somebody who as soon as they hear an idea that isn't theirs, it doesn't come from 30 years experience at X, Y, and Z, and they know so much more, and what do you know? The first five seconds of an idea that isn't theirs being communicated to them or around them, and they're shooting it down. They're poking it with holes. If it had been their idea, it would have been the best idea ever, and this will totally work, and just trust me, and let's just do it. But because somebody other than themselves might get credit for it. They have to poke holes in it until it either dies, it either bleeds to death, the death of a thousand paper cuts, or they're able to take credit for having significantly fundamentally transformed the idea by their contributions. The Marshmallow Test is a really useful book for biting your tongue and not snapping at that person who's being that way. It's also a good book for helping you understand people who lack impulse control, who are not self-aware, who are not disciplined, who are not self-controlled. Because if you can understand better how to be more self-controlled yourself and be more restrained, you can also model that behavior for those around you. And if you can model that behavior for those around you and understand how difficult it is sometimes to be self-controlled, you will be better at working with people who lack self-control, whether those people are in your family, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, in your nation, whether they're on the internet, whether they're at the grocery store, whether they're at church, whether they're wherever, right? People everywhere, for all time, in all situations, struggle with self-control. And if we're too impulsive and we're not willing to delay gratification, we can make some really boneheaded decisions. And we do on a daily basis. 
it isn't always necessary to sit down and meditate on something on a mountaintop for five years before making a decision. In fact, you can't. You can't do that. It's not realistic. It's not reasonable. It's not productive. But you also don't want to be making all of your decisions within 0.5 seconds of a situation unfolding because you won't make good decisions that way. You won't be making decisions for long because that is not a good strategy for surviving. So the marshmallow test is good for helping us understand the limitations of others' ability to restrain themselves. And we have to understand that better if we're going to be successful in helping them to make the most of the ideas we want them to consider and possibly embrace. The last two books on this list I talked about in yesterday's podcast when I told you about the summer reading program for my son, Josiah. Extreme Ownership, How do U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win by Jocko Willink and Leif Babbitt. And also The Dichotomy of Leadership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babbitt. If you want to hear more about these two books and also the author whose name is mentioned first, Jocko Willink, you can go back and listen to the previous episode of this podcast. But I'll tell you real briefly, I picked up Extreme Ownership because... Navy SEALs are highly respected for their competence, their lethality, and their confidence. And highly effective leadership is inseparable from highly effective communication. Part of what is so interesting to me about this book is not just the content, but the way in which that content is organized and presented. Clear, direct, easy to understand. These are all ways I would characterize what Will and Babin have to say here. They constantly use practical illustrations to make their points and as often or more often than using examples of when they were successful in applying these principles, they use negative examples of when they failed to apply their hard-earned lessons and that helps make them believable, approachable, exemplary. Even just the fact of their sharing times they fell short and the way they process and transmit those experiences to the reader helps to lead and set an example for the reader of how to humbly own and admit our own shortcomings and foibles. That builds trust. That demonstrates integrity. That sets a tone for communication, which lowers the defenses of people who need to improve their own attitudes and habits in high-stakes situations and circumstances. The Dichotomy of Leadership is a natural follow-up to the earlier book by Willink and Babin, and it further reinforces the teaching and commands of Jesus that we first remove the plank from our own eye before we go to our brother offering to remove the speck from his. At least, that's what I was thinking of when I was reading the book. Not that they're explicitly trying to make that point, but it seemed that what they were saying, what they're trying to do, is of a piece with what Jesus was talking about in Matthew. Babin and Willink wrote the first book, and they had a lot of folks in business embracing their advice very extremely, like I talked about in the episode yesterday. And the folks who were taking their advice from the first book in an extreme way were not often enough balanced in their application of these ideas and principles. So what Willink and Babin did, and this is commendable, 
Rather than faulting their readers, they decided to go back and supplement their earlier work with calls for balanced, nuanced, flexible approaches. Extreme ownership sometimes requires taking an inventory on how best to encourage others to take responsibility as well, particularly when we are trying to lead and exercise influence over those under our authority or in our sphere. We can do that best when we consistently admit our own faults, mistakes, and shortcomings and work to correct them, as well as touting our accomplishments. If you only ever tout your accomplishments, you come across like an arrogant jerk. You just do. And I've done it. So I'm not condemning you from on high on a pedestal looking down on you. I've done it. When I'm insecure, when I'm feeling threatened, when I'm feeling like there's something I want, if maybe I just brag enough on myself, I can get it. I can bully and intimidate this person, these people that are being difficult right now. I get it. It's tempting. Sometimes you do have to tout your accomplishments in order to stand your ground or in order to build trust in somebody who's not sure why they should trust you. And Babin and Willink do that as well. Obviously, the subtitle on their first book, How U.S. Navy Seals Lead and Win, is compelling. It's compelling, and they're touting their experience and their bona fides. Why should you trust them? Why is it good to trust them? Bona fides, good trust, well-placed. Well, because they're Navy SEAL commanders. They've led Navy SEAL teams. That's why. They've led Navy SEAL teams successfully, I should know, as opposed to unsuccessfully. But then part of being successful has been admitting when they didn't lead well, when they didn't handle something as well as they could have, and then they adapted their approach and re-engaged, and they owned their mistakes as part of an example to their teams of how to accept responsibility, how to adapt and overcome. involves admitting that your first plan, your initial plan, was incomplete or It wasn't good. It's not working. Let's try something else. So all of this whole list, that's the end of my list. All of this list, these are books that I've read that in some cases it maybe won't make sense why I feel like those are a book about communication or those are books about communication. But communication really is something that needs to be holistic. I hate the quick and dirty follow these 10 steps to be a better communicator, you know, tricks. I hate the sleight of hand thing. I hate the slick salesman hoping to make a quick buck, knocking on your door and pushing your buttons. I hate that. Good communication should honor God and it should honor the people that we communicate with and it should seek to have greater faithfulness in ourselves It should seek to accomplish greater faithfulness in those around us. It should seek to be true and real and sincere and genuine and helpful. Good communication is about stewardship. Stewardship of the fact that this is another person created in the image of God that you're interacting with right now. They have needs and desires and hopes and shortcomings and strengths and weaknesses and all of that like you do. And so... Good communication, to a great extent, as far as I'm concerned, is a lot of psychology. It's a lot of understanding 
how the soul works, how our soul works, how their soul works, how their mind and heart and soul come together to perceive situations and people and opportunities and threats and then being able to transmit meaning effectively both by our listening and our communicating speaking wise listening can communicate a lot by the way a lot of good communication is being able to listen well being able to learn what you need to know about your audience to figure out where they're at let's imagine you get pair dropped in a foreign country you don't know where you're at let's say you speak a dozen languages but you don't know where you're at first thing you might need to do before you start effectively communicating with people around you is listening. You might need to listen. What do the people speak around here? Do you speak the English? Yo hablo espanol? Un poco. Parlez-vous français? You know, you might need to figure out what the people there speak in order to communicate with them. So that's all for this episode. I hope that reading list is helpful to you. Let me know what you think. If you end up picking up any of these books, all of them, I think you won't be disappointed. I think you'll find them really interesting. They're each well-written, informative, challenging, intriguing, and taken together, they can help us to understand the part we play in communication, the part other individuals play in communication, the part that groups, culture plays in communication, all of that together. If we can get our arms around those things, those elements, those aspects of communication and be intentional about it and practice, 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 practice. Get that 10,000 hour mark and make it good habits. Make it good practices. Refine, re-engage. Adapt, re-engage. Modify, tweak, adjust, re-engage. And assess. Assess constantly. But that's all I got. It's a Saturday morning. I'm going to go get another cup of coffee. Thanks for listening as always. And until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.